Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, Ezra chapter 9 continued. We have entered a pretty hard-hitting, sobering, meddling portion of Ezra. And I have some things I need to say to you today. We're also going to add in an important detour. And so we'll still be in chapter 9 after today. <clears throat> there's, there's much that comes together here. So I ask you to bear with me. I think it will be worthwhile. Now these final two chapters, 9 and 10, occurred in a short period of time. Just a few months. But the actions that we're going to read about had long-term agonizing aftershocks. I ended with the thought that this week we'd witnessed the pain of many Judahites that resulted when decades of wrong before the Lord are finally admitted. And then there's a sincere attempt to reverse course, to make things right in God's eyes. Unfortunately, because the wrongs were so drastic, so was the remedy. And to get directly to the point, the predominant wrong that is being addressed here in these two chapters is marriages that the Lord deems as more than merely unacceptable between Hebrews, Jews from Judah, and foreigners. They're an abomination to Him. Now we began setting the stage for this last section of Ezra by reading part of Malachi. We read chapter 2. Where God through Malachi severely chastised the priests for leading the people down the wrong path. And the way they did this was by teaching the Jewish lay people customs and man-made religious traditions, essentially a form of early Judaism, that had absorbed all sorts of pagan thoughts and strange practices over the past few decades of their captivity in Babylon, much like a dry sponge dropped into a mud puddle absorbs the water along with the dirt. And this is instead of teaching them the pure word of God, which was their calling. This was their job. Therefore, in the midst of doing wrong, the Judahites were certain they were doing right. And that God would just be delighted in their behavior. Why would God's people be so mixed up and not seem to know right from wrong? Because they didn't know the Torah. They didn't know God's laws and commandments. They only knew customs and ways that their religious leadership had established and said were godly. And the Lord lays the blame for this abomination squarely at the feet of the religious leadership. Telling them that the ultimate cause of this wreckage was that the priests had broken covenant with the God of Israel. The covenant agreement was that the tribe of Levi would be set apart from the rest of Israel 
for special holiness, for special service to God, as the keepers and the teachers of His divine word, as well as being authorized administrators of His justice system. However, the Levites broke the covenant, says the prophet Malachi, in that they failed to teach God's word, the Torah. Instead, they taught the people something else. This led to the Jewish men divorcing the Jewish wives of their youths and marrying foreign women, which led to a growing schism between the people and the Lord. Jehovah saw their erroneous beliefs and consequent improper behavior as unfaithfulness towards him even though the people apparently didn't consciously realize what they were doing. Especially since it had been sanctioned. It had been promoted and practiced by the priesthood. This unfaithfulness expressed itself in the Hebrews marrying foreigners who worshipped other gods. And Yahweh says these unauthorized unions profaned his sanctuary. This turned into a very serious matter that had to be resolved. And Ezra is about to find himself at the center of this ugly controversy. Here's where I need to say a couple of things to you. I've regularly suggested that both modern Judaism and mainstream Christianity have behaved very nearly in the same way and have adopted somewhat the same attitude that we're reading about the priests possessing here in Malachi and Ezra, and they also seem to be oblivious of it. There are so many admirable traits of Judaism and good works of the mainstream Christian institutions that have advanced the kingdom of God. Yet, on the other hand, Judaism long ago turned from the Bible to the Talmud, for spiritual guidance. And many Christian institutions, not so very long ago, turned from consulting the complete Word of God to using half a Bible. And then in contemporary times, has effectively reduced the relevant parts of God's Word to a few favored verses. And these are chosen to back up certain doctrines that each denomination has settled upon. It's created confusion, error. It's created ignorance of God's truth. How has this situation happened? Well, first, it's because saved or not, followers or leaders, we all still have evil inclinations. And we have plenty of energy and plenty of imagination to make use of them. But mainly we get off course by confusing or intermixing non-biblical man-made philosophies and practices and beliefs and even political correctness with the true religion of the Bible. This is exactly the same thing that sent Ezra into a state of depression. And at times this comes from a bad habit of willingly adapting our doctrines baby step by baby step 
to be more inclusive and tolerant to the direction society is going. And this is in order to keep our sanctuaries filled and our members happy. Or at times, we reshape the image of God into something that's more attractive to the masses. Something that reflects our ever-evolving human aspirations and reasoning. To use the language of Malachi 2, verses 8 and 9, you turned away from the path. You caused many to fail in the Torah. You corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Adonai Zebaot. Therefore, I've in turn made you contemptible and vile before all the people because you didn't keep my ways. But you were partial in applying the Torah. In other words, the Levitical priest cherry-picked what parts of God's Word they wanted to teach and apply and figured the remainder is irrelevant, mostly bothersome. They also showed partiality by making sure that what they required of the people didn't apply so universally that it would upset those who really mattered in supporting the priesthood. Look at the results of this long-time trajectory of abandoning God's Word and His commandments for doctrines and for customs. What's the fastest growing religion in the world? Judaism? Christianity? No. It's Islam. It's not even close. Christianity has been on a steady decline for decades in the West. It's on life support in several parts of Europe. The only measurable growth of Christianity is in third world countries and China, of all places. And why is that? Well, God laid it out in Malachi. It's because we, the leadership of Christianity, have failed by not teaching God's true word. Now, we're seen as contemptible. Rightly so. Especially the younger generations see no more real meaning or integrity in the church than they do in the emptiness of the world. So why bother? On the other hand, there are those who enjoy being part of a congregation provided they can bring some worldly ways and ideals with them into the sanctuary, kind of shine them up a little bit, give them a religious aura and sanction, and then feel as though this is pleasing to God. I'm going to tell you something, it's a mirage. It's a dangerous mirage. Because we can so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that God's right there with us, cheering us on. But in fact, He is not. Because... It's not His ways we're actually seeking, but our own. How do I know this? How can I possibly be so certain of what I'm telling you? Because that's what the Torah and the prophets tell us if only we'll have the eyes to see and ears to listen. And it is what our Lord and Master Yeshua told us would happen towards the end when He cautioned with a 
really harsh statement that we've all heard a hundred times. And I wonder sometimes if we've not maybe become a little numb to it. In Matthew seven twenty two and 23, On that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Almost five centuries passed between Malachi's and Yeshua's messages of warning. What a wake-up call Malachi and the book of Ezra ought to be for us. But you know what? So few people will ever hear it or ever connect it to Christ's warning because the section of the Bible that almost all the wake-up calls happen is in the Old Testament. The place that many denominations tell their members they must not go. God tells us again and again that this is the formula for harmony with Him in any era. Trust Him. Obey Him. Be set apart from the world for Him. Trust Him. Obey Him. Be set apart from the world for Him. The church does pretty well at number one. Especially when it comes to advocating for Christ. We don't do so well at number two because a growing number of believers don't know God's Word. And because obedience is frowned upon now. Often labeled as legalism or just outdated. Number three, separation and distinction from the world. That isn't even on the radar. If anything, the goal seems to have become the opposite. Full integration with the world. You want to know why Islam's growing and Christianity is stagnating? Besides the fact that the evil one is successfully spreading his lies and his cult of death to willing dupes in preparation for the final battle with God that he knows is near, it's because Islam preaches what Christianity was at one time admired and known for. Living for a cause greater than ourselves. Showing unwavering devotion to our God. Being set apart in our beliefs and behavior so that we intentionally look very different from the unsaved world. Western Christians used to be fine with the idea that much of the world would reject us because of our faith. Now the concern seems to be to become as one with the world as possible so as to not be perceived as out of touch or distinct. Oh yeah, this is a less than flattering assessment and indeed I'm not speaking of all believers and of all congregations but I am speaking of both the long-term trend and where the most visible part of believing institutions have already arrived. No, none of us are above it all. None of us. So what's the solution? It's never changed. It's the same solution that Ezra was sent to Judah to put into motion. First, recognize that something is dreadfully wrong. 
Next, begin a journey of rediscovering God's Word, of believing it for what it says, and responding with repentance and reform. The good news. Now, the great news is we're not alone. We're not without resources to accomplish this task. We have the Holy Spirit to teach us. We have the Word of God at our fingertips. We have the Lord who's always ready to help us get back into harmony with Him when we're ready to confess our rebellion and do His way. At its heart, the book of Ezra is really about the three R's. Return, repentance, reform. Not as only as individuals, but also as communities and congregations. And that is what we need to be about as the time approaches for our Lord to return. But as we're about to see, the road to reform, the effort to right wrongs, will necessarily include limited options, tough choices, and a lot of unintended consequences. So with that, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it would be on page 1128. Ezra chapter 9. We're going to read it all. After these things had been done, The leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the Kohanim and the Levaim, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands and their disgusting practices. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of the women from these nations as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the Holy Seed has assimilated to the peoples of the lands. Moreover, the officials and leaders have been the main offenders in this treachery. When I heard this, I tore my robe and tunic, I pulled hair from my head and beard, I sat down in shock. All who tremble at the words of the God of Israel assembled around me when confronted with the treachery of these exiles. And I sat there in shock until the evening offering. And at the evening offering, with my cloak and tunic torn, I got up from afflicting myself, fell on my knees, I spread out my hands to Adonai my God, and I said, My God, I'm ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our sins tower over our heads, our guilt reaches up to the heavens. And since the times of our ancestors we've been deeply guilty. And because of our sins, we, our kings, our priests have been handed over to the kings of the lands. To the sword, to exile, to pillage, to disgrace, as is the case today. Now for a brief moment, Adonai our God has shown us the favor of allowing a remnant to escape and giving us a secure foothold in His holy place in order for God to make things look brighter to us and to to revive us a little in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God hasn't abandoned us in our slavery. 
but it has caused the kings of Persia to extend grace to us reviving us so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins and have a wall of defense in Judah and Jerusalem but now our God what are we to say after this? We've abandoned your commandments. Which you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when they said, The land which you are going to in order to take possession of it is a land defiled by the uncleanness of the peoples of the land because of their disgusting practices which have filled it with their filth from one end to the other. Therefore you are not to give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. You're not to promote their peace or prosperity ever. Only in this way will you grow strong and enjoy the good things of the land and and leave it as a lasting inheritance to your children. Now, after all that has come upon us because of our evil deeds and our deep guilt, and even so you, our God, have punished us less than our sins deserve, have given us a surviving remnant, are we to break your commandments again by making marriages with the peoples who have these disgusting practices? Won't you become so angry with us that you will destroy us completely so that there will be no surviving remnant, no one who escapes? Adonai, God of Israel, you are just... Yet we have been left a surviving remnant that has escaped, as is the case today. Look, we are before you in our guilt. Because of it, no one can stand in your presence. The opening words of after these things, this is referring back in a general way to the final thoughts of chapter 8. So chapter 9 begins after Ezra's group returned, turned over the gold and silver to the temple authorities, offered their sacrifices, and delivered the king's letter of instruction to the government officials of beyond the river. However, if we were to jump ahead a little bit to Ezra chapter 10 verse 9, we'd read this. All the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled in Jerusalem within the three days. It was the twentieth day of the ninth month and all the people sat in the open place in front of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So the events of chapter 9 were occurring about four and a half months after Ezra's first days back in Judah. Now it's early winter. It's the rainy season. And what happens is that some of the Jewish leaders come to Ezra with devastating news. Who exactly these leaders are, we don't know. But what these leaders confess to Ezra puts him into a state of shock. They tell him, it's not just the lay people, but also the priests, the Levites, that have refused to keep the foreigners who'd moved into Judah during the exile at arm's length. But also Hebrew men have married some of these foreign women. And then we get a list of eight foreign peoples, nations, that supplied the wives. The first thing we need to recollect is that the Torah does not prohibit Hebrews from intermarrying with Gentiles. 
In fact, we find several cases of it, of it even among the patriarchs. That said, the Lord didn't want the Hebrews marrying into certain people groups or nations. And most of these were targeted because they were residents of Canaan, the people God called wicked and that He wanted removed from the land in order to give it to His people, Israel. And if we look at this list in Ezra 9.1 and compare it with some earlier lists of people groups the Israelites were to avoid fraternizing with, we find some pretty familiar names. In Exodus 34, 11 through 16, we read this. Observe what I'm ordering you to do today. Here, I'm driving out ahead of you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a covenant with the people living in the land where you're going so they won't become a snare within your own borders. Rather, demolish their altars, smash their standing stones, cut down their sacred poles, because you're not to bow down to any other god since Adonai, whose very name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Don't make a covenant with the people living in the land. It'll cause you to go astray after their gods, sacrifice to their gods. Then they'll invite you to join them in eating their sacrifices. And you'll take their daughters as wives for your sons. And their daughters will prostitute themselves to their own gods and make your sons do the same. We get a similar list. Similar warning in Deuteronomy, but with an even more specific instruction that bars intermarriage with certain nations. It's starting in Deuteronomy 7.1. Adonai, your God, is going to bring you into the land you will enter in order to take possession of it. So he will expel many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations bigger and stronger than you. And when he does this, when Adonai your God hands them over ahead of you and you defeat them, you are to destroy them completely. Do not make covenant with them. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughter to his son. Don't take his daughter for your son. Boy, pretty explicit. Now there's three names on this Ezra list of nations that the Jews had married into that we don't find specific instructions against intermarriage. The Ammonites, Moabites, and the Egyptians. However, the reason for the problem with intermarriage with all of these various people groups reduces to a common one. They worship false gods. That's the issue. So let's understand This list is not meant to be the complete list of all the foreigners who the Jews might have married, but rather they're the biggest offenders. Some cases, indeed, God did directly legislate against them in particular in the Law of Moses. But in the second place, what we have here is direct disobedience to God's clearly stated laws. One of the issues that I'm constantly confronted with since I know without question 
that the law of Moses continues to exist and we're expected to obey it is which laws can or should modern Christians obey and which ones don't we have to? And my answer for that question is the same each time. We must find the principle underlying each law and then follow the spirit of the law especially when it seems impossible to follow the letter of the law. And that task is not as hard as it may sound. Nor is it the sole realm of theologians to answer the question. Let's embark on one of our famous, maybe infamous, detours to discuss this very pertinent issue of obedience to the law of Moses for modern worshippers of God. Because our story of Ezra shows that the ancient worshippers of God of his era struggled with this issue as well. The most fundamental concept for all of God's worshippers to grasp is that all the law, all of it, is built upon the Ten Commandments. Just as the Ten Commandments are built upon two foundational God principles. One that's found in Deuteronomy 6.5. The other is found in Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5. And you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your resources. And Leviticus 19.18, don't take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Adonai. Now, how can I know that what I just told you about the foundations of the law is truth? And it's not just me sermonizing, because Christ directly said so. In Matthew 22... 36 through 40. Rabbi, which of the mitzvot, which of the commandments in the Torah is the most important? And he told them, You are to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important command. And second, and a second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two commandments. Again, pretty definitive. Essentially, the love your God and love your neighbor commandments are speaking of the guiding principles for all relationships and all the law. Love God concerns our relationship with the Lord. Love your neighbor concerns our relationships with human beings. Therefore, the Ten Commandments expound upon those two principles. And they give us a broad overview of how we show love to God and how we show love to our fellow man, our neighbor. Once those ten broad commandments are given, the ten commandments, all the rest of the law, traditionally that's 603 more, is essentially case law. That gives us many examples of how or how not to 
bring about each of the Ten Commandments in practice. There are two overriding realities concerning how to obey the law that modern believers have to contend with. But only one of them, which was also pertinent to Jews in Ezra's day. The issue that we have to contend with that they didn't is that there's no temple and priesthood in our time. So none of the ritual law can be followed in our time and none that's attached to it. Not even modern Orthodox Jews living in Israel can do the Torah ritual law because it still requires a temple and a priesthood. Neither of which currently exist. But the struggle that both we and the ancient Jews have in common is to find and apply the divinely intended spirit and God principle behind each and every one of the laws of Moses. And that is because even when there was a temple and a priesthood, as history marched on, as the Jews dispersed far and wide into foreign lands, and as society and technology and political situations evolved, obeying the letter of the law of Moses at times was only possible within a limited Jewish cultural setting. But once someone moved away from it, or that cultural setting changed, there had to be adjustments in exactly how to observe some of these laws. For instance, it was always known among the Hebrew sages that the commandment for Israelite males not to shave off their sideburns, which we find in Leviticus 19.27, had primarily to do with shunning a custom that many of the Canaanite males sported in the days of the Exodus. It's not that it is somehow inherently evil for men not to have sideburns. It's that the Canaanite males were wicked. They were deserving of destruction in God's eyes and one standard way that they created an identity as Canaanites was this unique custom of having no sideburns. Therefore, the Lord insisted that the Hebrew males were not to do the same because he wanted no visible connection between his people and the Canaanites. But in our day, the Canaanites have evolved and dissipated. So the issue of identity according to sideburns is long past. So if we're to observe the spirit of the sideburns law, the divine intent of the law, then simply having or not having sideburns is no longer the distinctive feature to separate a follower of God from a follower of other gods. Another example, one of an entirely different nature, might be how we should observe the law of the Sabbath year that has gained the traditional Jewish title of Shemitah. And by the way, that begins a few more days in September this year, 2014. Because it's a Shemitah year. Shemitah means the release. The release. Biblically, this is the seventh year 
of a seven-year cycle of years. It is to operate just like a week does. Six days or six years are regular work days or years. But the seventh day, or the seventh year, is a Sabbath. We're to cease from our labors. The Sabbath year, though, is not so much a rest for humans. Rather, it's a rest for the land. Now, obviously, if the land is resting, a farmer is not sowing, tilling, and harvesting. So then he also isn't laboring. But that's sort of a byproduct as opposed to the point of the law. Listen to Leviticus 25, starting in verse 1. Adonai spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he said, Tell the people of Israel, When you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Sabbath rest for Adonai. Six years you'll sow your field. Six years you'll prune your grapevines and gather your produce. But in the seventh year, it's to be a Shabbat of complete rest for the land. A Shabbat for Adonai. You will not sow your field nor prune your grapevines. Now, how in the Western world, almost anywhere for that matter, are we to stop all growing of field crops, vineyards, and orchards for an entire year? Can you imagine that? And I'm talking about the same year worldwide. The commandment however, seems clear to me and to the Jewish scholars and sages and rabbis that this applies, at least at first, not to the whole earth, but only to the land of Israel. Why only there? Because the commandment directly says so. When you enter the land I'm giving to you. Yet no doubt... From a spiritual perspective, as the kingdom of God spreads out from Israel, so then should the laws of God spread with it. There is a principle at play here. And it is that both the land and human beings who live on it are to be given a period of rest based on a formula of one in seven. It is a God principle based on creation itself. For God created land, and He created life, and land is needed to support life. Thus they both have importance to Him. They're connected. For human, our rest is one day in seven. For land, its rest is one year in seven. I've been asked a number of times recently, okay then, should believers observe Shemitah, the Sabbath year? And my answer is, probably only if you're in Israel. Because while most of the 613 laws apply inside and outside of Israel, a few can realistically only apply within Israel, and Shemitah might be one of them. As you can tell, I'm not real rigid on that. Further, let me point out, you see, that it's a Jewish tradition that is named the sabbatical year Shemitah. We don't find that title for the Sabbath year in the Law of Moses. In fact, the 
term Shemitah is actually only applied to a certain aspect of the Jubilee year which is the culmination of seven seven year cycles and in that context Shemitah release was only referring to bond servants that were to be given their freedom to those in debt who were to have their debts forgiven and those who lost their land and were to have it returned to them by the current landholder. Again, this release was to occur only on the Jubilee year, every 50th year. When and why rabbis borrowed the act of release, Shemitah, from the Jubilee ordinance and applied it to the Sabbath year ordinance, I don't know. And by the way, there is no biblical record of a jubilee year ever being observed. And the rabbis know of none. And the jubilee year is not currently observed by Judaism, although it is given recognition when a jubilee year arrives, even if none of its requirements are carried out. And let's not forget... that Deuteronomy slightly modified the ways how some of the laws of Moses were observed because when they were first given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers the Israelites were desert wanderers but when they entered Canaan their living circumstances would change drastically and they would now live in houses and cities. They'd farm fields and orchards to grow food. In other words, there were things they could do once settled in Canaan they couldn't do as wanderers. And there were things they had to do as wanderers that simply no longer applied as permanent residents of towns and villages. But here's the kicker. While in some instances details of how a law was or could be observed might change due to changing circumstances, the morality behind the law, the principle and the spirit that spawned each and every law was never to be tampered with. Again, how do I know that modern believers are to obey the law even if we have to adapt some details of it to our current circumstances and we're not to tamper with his principles or morality because our Messiah told us so. Matthew 5:17 through 19 you're going to have this memorized one of these days. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches Others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
society and circumstances were very different for Ezra than they were 130 years earlier when Judah was led away captive to Babylon. But the Torah-based morality and principle of honoring no other gods and of God's worshippers not marrying pagans and of no divorce except due to unfaithfulness and of following God's word as opposed to the latest conglomeration of rules and customs invented by the religious leaders was no different when Ezra arrived than when Nebuchadnezzar burned the first temple to the ground. However, precisely how to do some of these laws was necessarily different now. So next week, we're going to continue to look at Ezra and his responses to the new circumstances that Judah lived under and his remedy for these illicit marriages by Hebrews to foreign pagans.